Hello world, what's up? Welcome to another episode of Exchange, a show where we discuss interesting problems in the front-end domain and the solutions through the experiences of experts. I'm your host Anurag. In the last episode, we were joined by Rakesh in Gautam to talk about micro frontends. We discussed the origins of micro frontends and dissected its various integration approaches. Today, we'll continue our discussion with Rakesh and Gautam. Now, all this discussion, I think, brings us to a very important question. One thing is for sure that micro frontends is an evolving architecture pattern and it does require some uh, effort to be put in. Now, given the amount of thought and pre-work that needs to be put in, is it always a good idea to use micro frontends for all of the modern web development? Yeah, that's the golden question. That uh, So we are currently at a stage uh, where every other project, large or small, is uh, considering using the micro frontends architecture which I think is wrong. So uh, microfrontage architecture is typically suited for large web applications uh, where there are multiple teams uh, can be enabled to work in parallel on different pieces of the application. It enables team to develop and deploy end-to-end -end faster without sharing the technology or design or release process with the other teams involved. And when a team wants to use a component developed by the other teams, all they need to do is refer to the usage documentation creating, created by the owning team. Now, Let's uh, take a scenario where there is only a single team working on the application, right? Micro front-end architecture primarily becomes a liability here. So the kind of overheads that micro front-end architecture creates uh, makes it a Herculean task to manage components if you are in a small team and you basically know what the other person is working on, right? Some of the obvious overheads uh, uh, that come with micro front-ends are intercomponent communication, routing, DevOps, release management, version management, and so on. Uh, so there needs to be a good amount of pre-work before you close on this design decision. And once you design, uh, once you weigh on the pros and cons and decide to move ahead with the micro frontends architecture, then uh, there is a good framework created by uh, Luca Mezzalira, uh, which primarily consists of four stages, and it's called the micro frontends decision framework. And uh, here, the four stages are firstly, you need to define the micro frontends approach, as in, uh, like we discussed before, if you need to go ahead with uh, horizontal or vertical splitting and how the teams will be structured uh, within the micro frontends application. Secondly, uh, how to compose the micro frontends, as Gotham explained earlier, going with server side composition versus client side composition versus edge side composition based on mm -hmm. the nature of the application that you're developing. And then once you come up with the uh, uh, approach for composing the micro frontends, then how do you route the applications from micro frontend one to micro frontend two? For example, if you're using client side composition, you use the app shell to route from one node to the other. And there is a seamless uh, transfer uh, from the uh, uh, application one to application two without the user even noticing that there is a there has been a page reload. But if you go ahead with the uh, server side composition, you'll need to have the web server enabled uh, to go from the search application to the reservation app application, for example. And mm -hmm. similarly, edge side, if you're using the CDN, the similar logic has to be used at the uh, edge side 
if you're using something like an AWS CloudFront, you configure the rules on CloudFront, and then uh, any kind of processing that you want to do, you do it at uh, the Lambda at Edge uh, layer. And then once you establish all the routing, the last part is how do you communicate between the micro frontends, as Gautam mm -hmm. explained, which is you can use PubSub or you can use a global state uh, using Redux Dino Store to namespace the uh, uh, store into different parts and then uh, primarily share information between the different uh, micro frontends. Gautam, what are some pitfalls of using micro frontends? Have you or your team faced challenges during the implementation? If yes, then how did you get around those challenges? Okay, so I have been part of two micro frontend implementations with both of them being very different. But one problem that stayed common was how to improve the code reusability. Now it is not wise to reduce the scope of regression at the expense of duplicating the code. As a component breakdown practice, I follow atomic design methodology by Brad Frost. I start by publishing all the atoms and most commonly used molecules as a separate library, which can also act as mm -hmm. a design system. And as Rakesh previously mentioned uh, about domain driven design, the next step is to identifying the domain specific organisms and molecules and publishing each domain as a separate micro front end. This improves reusability a lot and also helps put a central governing body that defines the style guide and pattern that needs to be followed across a website. So it's like a body that is governing how the brand design guidelines are being followed because with different teams owning different micro frontend, it becomes difficult to manage the quality and standards across the applications. Now that you are trying to publish some libraries and also deploying multiple applications for frontend, you might have guessed the next piece of the puzzle is DevOps. From defining the versioning to publishing strategies and to building pipelines, for each micro frontend repo, there is a lot of work that needs to be done here. And the amount of changes will depend on what type of runtime integration you choose for your micro frontend and how do you structure your uh, code repository, like choosing between a mono repo versus a multi repo. So, how this will actually impact uh, your pipeline is let's say if you have a multi or a poly repo structure your pipeline will essentially you will have to have separate pipelines for each and every repository. But if mm -hmm. you go with a mono repo, you can live with a single uh, Jenkins job, but with multiple configurations. So let's say if you pass a configuration for deploying and building a single package that can be done. There are a lot of CI CD tools which are evolving in terms of just with uh, micro frontend thoughts. For example, GitLabs allows you to run pipeline on different folder structures. So you can define your pipelines, certain steps that can run on just particular folders. So your single pipeline can essentially work for all different apps and able to build, test, and deploy all of them. <clears throat> But Gautam, 
wouldn't that put a lot of burden on a single pipeline so wouldn't that impact the deploy independent deployability of the applications so what if uh, two teams want to deploy or test at the same time um, mm-hmm. one team would have to wait uh, till the first team gets its jobs done right so again when these jobs are running they are running on specific um, branches and specific folders your pipeline can be configured to run uh, in parallel so that when one team is building let's say application a the other team can work on building the application b and once those application are built the deployable uh, component that is created may it can be a zip file it can be a docker image right that can be published to or it can be a nginx image it can be easily deployed to your cluster uh, independently of which team is building which component and uh, essentially each deployment can work independently even with a uh, mono repo structure okay so basically what we are saying is that uh, from a maintenance standpoint we have only one pipeline but then that pipeline based on the configurations and the folder structure of the applications they spawn out different jobs that run on probably different build servers so that none of the teams is impacted right right so with gitlab uh, essentially you can tell each step in a, a pipeline can run on a different server so it it has its own ways of optimizing how uh, it is running different jobs similarly mm-hmm. same practices can also be used with jenkins and other pipeline systems uh, even with jenkins uh, it's as simple as saying if you want one job for deployment and you have made it parameterized so from within a drop down you're selecting which is the application that you want to run the build and deployment for uh, since it's following the same uh, practices uh, if you are following a, mo- a monorepo uh, the deployment step is mostly the same for all the applications and you basically just need to uh, provide the parameters on which application the job needs to run on so if two teams are uh, selecting uh, two different applications for the same job it will run in parallel but they won't uh, step on each other's toes during the deployment process as well mm. and gotham you previously talked about a polyglot micro frontend architecture right where one of the applications could be in react and the other one in angular do you recommend that practice what are your thoughts about it right that that's a very good question and when i hear uh, people talking about micro frontend the first thing that comes to their mind is that they can have a single page which is running multiple frameworks when you go back and see the size the file size of each of those frameworks they if you run react and angular on the same page it will essentially kill the performance of the page so it's not a very good practice of running multiple frameworks on a single page but if we talk about on different pages i would still say it is incurring lot of maintainability and uh, monetary debt on the client because now the client will have to support teams which are having different capabilities and and managing those teams but this is actually one good pattern that can be used to progressively upgrade a framework or replace a framework altogether 
So I'll give you one of the example where Rakesh and I worked on a client pitch for micro front ends where we help them to migrate from the legacy tech stack to react uh, without having to do a massive overhaul. And uh, we defined a micro front end strategy that would support their existing architecture and allowed them to move to react component by component and page by page rather than going in a massive uh, uh, big bang rollout. Right. What do you recommend is that uh, because of performance and maintainability issues, it, these polyglot micro frontends should be avoided. But then the use case that you gave about migrating an existing legacy website to a modern website, that is where it definitely comes handy. That's an interesting exactly. thought. And I am sure that uh, some of us will take hints from it. Definitely a very sane strategy. Uh, migration is generally one of the most difficult things to do. Um, this strategy does, I think uh, it should instill a lot of, lot of confidence in the business that uh, they would always you know, play it safe while uh, you know, giving the flexibility to the developers to modernize the stack. Okay, so uh, so Gautam, on this note, I have another question basically regarding Monorepo. Since we kind of opened the bag, the cat is already out of the bag. Monorepo versus multi-repo or polyrepo discussion, that is something hugely debated across organizations, across teams. I have personally fought a lot of battles, but Monorepos are increasingly gaining popularity in the front-end space. Storing multiple projects in a single repository kind of makes the repository a monolith. Does it compromise any advantages of the micro frontend architecture? Mono repo is not a new concept. It has been used exhaustively by the likes of Google, Facebook, Microsoft, etc. for managing the various code repositories. In a normal world, you would keep each independently deployable or publishable code in a separate repository. And this is what is called a multi or a poly repo setup. However, if you keep all the related deployable applications in a single repository without impacting their deployment or publishing strategy, that is that single repository is called a mono repo. It improves visibility, collaboration, sharing and development velocity. Different vertically sliced team can now work together under same governance model. Entire code base setup available through a single repository, giving everyone the access to anything and everything that is being added or refactored in the code base. And it is easy for people to see what the application is doing in entirety. Another big advantage of monorepo is that you can reuse the dependencies from within the monorepo without actually having to publish them to a separate registry and hence improving the speed of uh, development. But you will need some specialized tool to manage monorepos and some of the features that uh, monorepo tools provide are around ability to manage dependencies of all different applications in a monorepo with the ability to selectively install dependencies for just one application. Uh, the other being simplified package publishing 
so that you can use dependencies from one project to another without uh, actually having to publish the package uh, to an npm registry and the ability to run the commands to build run and test single or multiple applications within a mono repo because now it is a collection of applications you would want to run your npm scripts on different applications but your tool should be able to provide you capability to run that command for one or multiple application so these are some of the uh, features that you would look in a mono repo tool and before we get into the actual tools that are available to manage mono repos so one of the common arguments that i hear going against the mono repo architecture or at least from the perspective of a person who has never tried this architecture or uh, way of organizing code is that uh, the same point that you mentioned that goes for it i think they take against it and which is giving the developers the ability to see the entire application so because in a mono repository you generally most of the git tools or git repository tools that are out there including github bitbucket they do not provide you permissions based on folders so if you have application a inside folder a folder and application b inside another folder it's not possible to segregate permissions based on folder so when i'm checking the code base out i will have visibility over the entire code base and it will also be possible for me if i'm in team a managing application a it will be possible for me to tinker around with code in application b what that means is it will be additional responsibility on the code reviewer to ensure that those prs or pull requests are not merged and rejected uh, is there a way to automate this right so essentially uh, there are a couple of things when you uh, look on the repository side for uh, setting up a mono repo first of all uh, by default the git uses uh, the way git is created the file system that it uses it's not optimized for mono repos because mono repos uh, when worked by multiple developers over a period of time generates uh, tens and thousands of commits uh, which is normally not a use case when you are working in a, a poly repo case so in this case git has come out with a different uh, file system altogether uh, git large file system which is essentially used for mono repos uh, to support uh, multiple commits the other problem that you talked about was ability of checking out the entire uh, code base now that's a problem as well because let's say if i am uh, i am setting up a new system and uh, maybe uh, i want to do a quick fix and send my code and i'll have to do a checkout of the entire code repository to reduce that uh, uh, effort to check out the entire repository there are tools available to just take a check out of part of an application so git has come out with an experiment uh, experimental feature which is sparse checkout using that you can mm -hmm. uh, actually check out a certain path of a given application uh, this is again available in git labs 
they call it partial cloning and mm-hmm. uh, in with if you are using something like nx uh, you can configure a plugin which is called nx sparse checkout once the checkout is done the the other problem comes as let let's say if i want to do the uh, dependency installation because uh, node modules is is already world's heaviest object and if you combine multiple applications and create a single node modules it 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 is it takes forever to install all those dependencies but using tools like uh, yarn lerna or nx you can essentially go and do a specific installation of uh, dependencies for a specific application so let's say if i have uh, five different microservices app uh, micro frontend applications in my code repository i can go and do a dependency installation just for one of them and push my check in and test my application the last point that you talked about was around uh, how do we define the code ownership that we talked about vertical slicing of the teams but uh, one side we are saying that teams are independent and uh, they are able to take the changes but other side we are saying with mono repo everyone can see and make modifications to each other codes then how do we ensure that uh, for let's say if i'm owning uh, one part of the application let's say search uh, nobody from other team is actually making a check in or able to merge mrs in search so get and GitLab actually provides you uh, ability to provide code owners at the folder level. So it's a simple uh, markdown file where you define the users that are code owners. And unless there is an approval from that particular code owner, the MRs cannot be merged or taken further. So those are some of the capabilities that you can actually use with uh, these uh, repository systems. Uh, and because micro frontend has recently gained a lot of popularity in normal public, like when I was talking about earlier, be it being an older concept, it was being used in very selective large organizations which had uh, billions of dollars and building full of scientists. But now all of this technology is coming out to public and the platforms like GitHub, GitLab, they are taking a uh, lot of opportunity in optimizing on that front be it in terms of optimizing how they store the code to how the check-ins are made to how deployments are done so they are optimizing all for mono repos and in some time you will see more such uh, changes coming like in npm 7 there is already uh, support for uh, mono repos which was earlier not present in npm and options like yarn workspaces and lerna made much sense and it seems like out of the big three git management tools gitlab seems to be the most uh, micro frontend friendly something to check out for sure yeah from okay. what i have also seen that's that's kind of uh, yeah true Time for a quick snip, a small segment where a fellow experienced technologist shares a pro tip, a trivia, or a community update. Today's snip is brought to you by Prashi Kapoor. 
Thanks, Anurag. Glad to be a part of this podcast. I'm a senior experienced technologist, and today I'm going to speak a little bit about microservices. As Rakesh mentioned in the last podcast, micro frontend concept was ideally extended from microservices. So, similar to micro frontends, microservices is an architectural style. It structures an application as a collection of highly maintainable and testable services. These are loosely coupled and independently deployable. It helps us keep our code segregated according to multiple business logics. So generally, each microservice is owned by a different technical team, and it makes it easier for them to deliver very large applications. So now moving on to deciding whether microservices is a good fit for you. The major difference between microservices and a monolithic application is that they can be written in multiple languages. For example, one can be in Node.js, whereas the other one can be in Java. But that is not the only reason. You can use it when you would want to have standalone business applications or even reusable modules like login services or document fetching. The last and the most important reason I would say is to give other clients the ease of access and swift deliveries. Now let me tell you about my experience working on microservices. Our client is a big time logistics company in the US. They wanted to segregate their code as per the business rules and have separate teams handling it. So we went ahead and created separate microservices accordingly like shipping, accounts, documents. For the shared code, we created a common base project which gets imported in each microservice while creating the docker image. We decided to use one of the best Node.js frameworks called Nest.js for building an efficient and scalable server-side application. Nest.js is compatible with TypeScript, hence it ensures the clean code practices. It provides us with a lot of out-of-the-box features like libraries for authentication and authorization, logging and exception handling, which can be further extended or easily used as is. It has a very clean documentation and helps us create new microservice setup with a single command itself. Each new microservice has a default module init file, a controller, a resolver, a service file along with the schema to help our developers with the structuring. Controllers would contain any specific endpoints, whereas resolver would have the code to resolve our queries. Our business logic resides in the service file. Nest.js also provides great support for Redis integration and easy steps for achieving Apollo Federation at the gateway layer. To end with this, I would definitely like you to go ahead and explore more about microservices and Nest.js. Are there libraries or build systems that make developing microfrontends easy or is it kind of still a custom thing that needs to be started from scratch? I think uh, we are at a stage where they, we have uh, quite a few uh, frameworks available to help you get started with microfrontends. But uh, the one which has gained most, most popularity in recent months is the Webpack 5 module federation, which is more of a custom approach. Uh, but in, yeah, I mean, it's a JavaScript architecture invented by uh, Zach Jackson, who proposed to create a Webpack plugin for it as well. And the Webpack team has helped them bring the plugin into Webpack 5. So it allows a, a JavaScript application to dynamically import code from one application at runtime. And the module builds a unique JavaScript entry file, uh, which can be downloaded by other applications just by setting up the Webpack configuration. 
you need to configure the host and you need to uh, configure the name of the application. What is the entry file? And then Webpack takes it from there. It also tackles the problem of code dependency and increased bundle size, uh, primarily during the dependency sharing. For example, if you're downloading React component, a React component, your application won't import, import React code twice, right? Uh, which primarily is the biggest concern when you're trying to uh, share code between two different micro front ends. And this module will smartly use the React source uh, you already have and only import the component code. Now, the challenge comes mm. uh, during SSR. Uh, so, Webpack module federation uh, works seamlessly for client side applications. But when you uh, have to work with uh, server, -side app, uh, server side rendering, something like uh, Next.js, you'll have okay. to use a package like Node, um, uh, Node MF, which is the module federation for the uh, Node.js uh, side of things. So, once you enable that, you can have universal rendering uh, and code sharing for both your server side uh, code as well as your client side code. The other okay. part is the standard framework. So there are a couple of standard frameworks called Pyrel and single SPA. So Pyrel uh, enables you to create a modular front-end application, which is extended at runtime with decoupled modules. And those decoupled modules in the Pyrel world are called pilots. So when you talk about a client-side composition, uh, Gautam had mentioned about the app shell and then having the micro front-ends in place. So an app shell here would be, uh, is primarily called the Pyrel instance and what the pilot is the uh, micro front end which is developed independently and can be shipped independently uh, along with the other assets. Both the uh, Pyrel instance as well as the pilots, uh, which are the feature modules, can be executed and debugged in a in, in an emulator that they uh, expose uh, on the local uh, development environment as well. So it's one of the most uh, mature frameworks uh, that I've seen uh, in terms of micro front ends. Um, on and the other hand, is it is it a free and open source uh, project or is it an enterprise thing? From the website, it looks pretty enterprisey to me. Yeah, it looks enterprisey, but yeah, I mean, uh, it's more. It was released an open source uh, and uh, free product uh, which can be used. I'm not sure if they have come up with any enterprise plans as of now. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we had explored this for one of the projects uh, we had uh, we were working on earlier. The other part is a single SPA, which basically applies a life cycle to every application. So each app you can respond to. Uh, URL routing events, and then you must know how to bootstrap, mount, unmount on the dam, on the DOM, right? And kind of sells the pattern that one can use different frameworks on the same page, which I'm not a big fan of, and we have already discussed that earlier. But it's not a necessity. You can go with the same framework for all your micro front ends. Uh, but yeah, I mean, single SPA primarily exposes you all the uh, events which you can listen to, but you need to be responsible for the mounting, unmounting, and bootstrapping of the applications. So the other option. Uh, that we have apart from the standard frameworks is going with the AWS architecture. If someone is comfortable with the entire AWS ecosystem, right? And we can make use of AWS CrowdFront, Lambda at Edge, and S3 buckets. Uh, and primarily the orchestration here will happen on the CDN itself instead of uh, the client side or the server side. So when I talk about uh, Lambda at Edge itself, how is it different from uh, AWS Lambda? So mm -hmm. Lambda at Edge uh, service takes care of everything uh, required to replicate, route, or scale your code with high availability so that functions can run at an AWS location close to your users. So it's not at a single location, and then you have to manage where it is deployed and which all regions where I need to manage the Lambda at. So Lambda at Edge works closely with CloudFront, and it's closer to the user's location where it's executed. And you only pay for the compute time instead of the scaling replication and other aspects of it. 
So if you want to process mm. something like a client's request or you want to uh, process the origin responses uh, coming back from the server, you can do all these things at uh, Lambda at Edge. Uh, the memory, CPU and other aspects for uh, Lambda at Edge are uh, lower than a regular Lambda uh, because it uh, primarily requires you to optimize your code and have uh, lower response times because it's closer to the CDN. So you can make use of Lambda at Edge primarily for that. The S3 buckets are uh, primarily to store the assets. Uh, so if you have different micro front ends for, uh, let's say an example, take an example for the reservation. If you have search reservation and other parts of the application, you can have each of your applications deployed in different S3 buckets. And from the uh, CDN itself, you are routing uh, the user to the specific S3 page and serve the index.html and the corresponding assets from there. You can handle all the caching, any kind of HTML modifications using the Lambda, uh, which is closer to your CloudFront and uh, serve the dynamic parts of the application as well. Now, in this approach, if you want to introduce something like personalization, so which uh, primarily involves uh, processing the request from the browser, getting the information of the local user's geography, and then uh, routing them to a separate version of the application. You can handle them using Lambda at Edge, and you can use specific configuration information using uh, dynamic DynamoDB global tables, which is a bit different from a standard uh, DynamoDB uh, instance because it's not for a specific region. This is again uh, distributed across different uh, locations across the world, and it's again close to the user. So you don't have to travel a lot from the Lambda to get the information for the config and also serve the personalized page. So this entire architecture is quite mature and you can use this as well if you are invested with AWS. Right. And I think a lot of teams that want to go cloud native would be looking at this option. Absolutely. I mean, this is one of the most uh, mature architecture in terms of handling uh, it at the cloud and if you are invested with AWS, you, you should definitely consider this option before any of the other frameworks. Mm. And I think here DevOps would play a vital role, right? So uh, developers would have to work with the DevOps team more extensively to get this done. <laughs> yeah, so uh, primarily when you talk about the two pizza teams uh, that we talked about earlier, so it also has, uh, it can have your DevOps uh, person as part of your team itself and you don't need to definitely uh, mm. specialize in DevOps to handle all these operations. Once you have the necessary permissions, you just need to uh, deploy to the S3 bucket. You have to set up jobs to deploy your code to the S3 bucket, and then everything is taken care of by the CDN from there. So you don't have to deploy applications to change your routes, and you just need to change the configuration. So it's a one-time learning uh, for most of the teams. Once you are comfortable with it, it becomes seamless. So Gautam, what is your advice for teams starting out with micro frontends? especially ones that want to use Webpack 5. Right. So again, implementing micro frontend is not as simple as starting a project with, what do you say, create React app. Mm -hmm. Right. There is no out-of-the-box strategy with the uh, existing starter templates or kits. But haven't these uh, starter templates spoiled us? <laughs> Yeah, these have. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> and uh, the the biggest problem is then you will have to go and implement either a custom solution or you have or there, you can evaluate if an existing framework, something like single spa or Pyrel or some of the examples that Rakesh just talked about, if if they fit your use case. For example, uh, 
using serverless micro frontends at the edge or again uh, rakesh talked at length about webpack 5 module federation which can essentially be used or something like node micro frontend uh, for enabling ssr in nextjs right so those are some of the options that can be used uh, to uh, build a micro frontend approach but if if nothing works then yes a custom approach definitely helps and rakesh what is your advice for teams wanting to convert existing monolith frontends to micro frontends yeah i think that this is the most common bucket right uh, so most of the implementations even that we have been part of have been migration uh, uh, operations itself uh, so when you talk about an existing application which has uh, hundreds of functionalities as part of it was built as a monolith uh, sometime around uh, three to four years back. And they want to now go into a model where uh, the teams can be independently managing each of the different sections of the application. So to achieve that, I think the first thing that we need to do is ensure that some level of domain design already exists in the monolith uh, that we already have. and. Uh, when we talk about domain design, uh, it's good to have even the folder structures aligned to the domains, right? So there might be a, some uh, level of refactoring which is required within the uh, existing monolith application so that uh, we can break them down later into separate repositories or into a monorepo structure, uh, whatever we close with. Um, and then uh, we go about it incrementally, even instead of going big bang with one single plan to convert everything into micro frontends, right? You start with one of the applications within it and then identify which is the first small application which we can experiment with and then uh, go ahead with uh, breaking down the different parts of the application, assigning a team which is handling the entire front end, back end and uh, BFA player for that particular uh, domain and uh, go incrementally one by one and choose the technology stack for that particular uh, domain and uh, yep, start with the conversion. Even the routing strategy when we talk when we go from uh, one application to the other. So suppose uh, you start with the home page and you migrate to the search application uh, using slash search route. When you go to, uh, when you come to the slash search route, that means you are starting with a whole new application now, which is a micro front end application. And uh, this serves the individual uh, functionalities. And in, when user migrates away from this application, that goes back to your monolith again. So you are basically going incremental uh, um, by uh, going one by one and testing out what is the uh, optimization that you have achieved with this uh, micro front approach before migrate, migrating the other applications. And you can get all your learnings from that single app itself. Thanks, Rakesh and Gautam. I'm sure our listeners will take a lot from this episode. I hope they will apply the learnings in their new project. Now we are at the end of the show. And as you know, it is time for side bites. Rakesh and Gautam, are you ready with your picks? Yep. Yep. Great. Who wants to go first? Gautam, do you want to go first? Sure, Rakesh. Uh, so recently, since the lockdown came, uh, I had been starting my culinary skills. Uh, but to refine, uh, I have uh, recently bought some books. Uh, uh, lastly, I was reading this a book called Masala Labs. It uncovers some of the science behind Indian cooking. For example, uh, how 
pressure cooking increases the boiling point of water. All the signs that we were reading in the books uh, in school, uh, it, it kind of brings that back and attaches it with the culinary skills. So been uh, reading around some of that stuff. Uh, the other thing that I had been uh, trying my hands on is model based testing. So sometime back I started using uh, finite state machines to manage the state on the front end application. While using that I explored a very uh, interesting use case of testing the applications using the model based testing through which uh, models can be created for traversing through the application and then using simple graph algorithms because uh, your finite state machine is a cyclic directional graph and uh, simple graph algorithms can be used to traverse through that graph uh, which essentially helps you cover different scenarios of traversing the application and not just one so with a lesser amount of code more uh, testing can be done yeah i think i had used model based testing in one of the recent projects uh, so it reduced my overall test weight from uh, 250 lines to i think 50 lines <laughs> for the entire test <laughs> It was quite wow. uh, optimal. I loved it. We should have a different, yeah. uh, definite session around. Uh, I'll go ahead with my, my picks. Uh, so I recently uh, started reading uh, The Code Breaker by Walter Isaacson, which primarily uh, the story revolves around how a group of scientists uh, came out, collaborated uh, to create uh, CRISPR, which is a gene editing technology. So if you don't know about CRISPR, uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, while the vaccines uh, started, uh, the development for the vaccine started developing. Uh, CRISPR was one of the key technologies behind uh, uh, coming up with the mRNA-based vaccines, uh, and uh, Pfizer and Moderna, some of them, uh, which highly utilized the CRISPR technology. Uh, so it's one of the key technologies, definitely, which was important for all of us. Uh, and the other part is, uh, it also uh, story also revolves around how the patent was happened between different uh, scientists uh, who were involved in this process and uh, how the entire uh, technology came into being and uh, how, eventually how one of the scientists called uh, Jennifer Rudnack won a Nobel Prize uh, for discovering the CRISPR technology. So it's a good story around uh, collaboration. And uh, the other pick for me would be uh, uh, primarily I've been exploring blockchain development uh, for the past two months and uh, I've been uh, exploring Ethereum based development as well as exploring the Matic chain. Uh, the first book I read I think around blockchain was the blockchain revolution uh, by Tapscott Brothers. Uh, so it gives a good idea of the kind of possibilities uh, uh, if you are a beginner to blockchain and how uh, you can apply blockchain to different areas like supply chain management or even finance and other aspects, uh, even uh, a lot of info around uh, decentralized finance, which is DeFi and uh, decentralized apps. So it gives a, gives a good idea around that. So it's a def definite uh, must read for a new uh, newcomer. These are the two picks I have. While we were talking, I've, I already added the code breaker to my Goodreads wish list. <laughs> Thank you for the suggestion. Definitely. Walter Isaacson has a couple of uh, more good, be, uh, good books um, like Steve Jobs biography. I think most of people might have read his uh, biography of Steve Jobs and also uh, he has a book on, called Innovators. Uh, 
I'm not sure if you guys have read it. Oh, yeah. So it's a good. I've read it. Must read for you. <laughs> I've read it and I've talked about it in a previous episode. It was one of the best things that I've ever read. And being right. a computer science uh, student myself, um, and uh, you know, passionate about uh, software uh, and history of software. Uh, this is something that resonated with me a lot and I got a lot of motivated. I I got a posted a very detailed review about my my reading on Goodreads. Uh, definitely recommend it to all. All of the people. I mean, you don't have to be a software engineer to like that book. Uh, it's about, uh, I think, uh, Rakesh, as, as you mentioned with the code breaker, uh, the innovators is totally about teamwork and collaboration and kind of proves the point that innovation never happens in isolation and gives a couple of examples also where a couple of people who were far ahead of their competition, when they were working alone, they could not make their innovations succeed financially right. or even technically, they were not able to complete their projects. And where, where there was a team of people involved, doesn't matter from what backgrounds, it was always the case that they were more successful. So definitely a great treat. Okay, I'll talk about my pick. Um, this time I have only one pick, um, which is, uh, it's a movie uh, called Luca. It came out very recently. It's a Pixar movie and uh, has a very common theme like a lot of Pixar movies do. Uh, so it, it's a it's a story about friendship, I guess, more than anything else. Uh, so you might have seen the trailers and I think the trailers, trailers came out not that long ago. And I think this movie was released directly to Disney Plus. So I watched it on my Hotstar uh, subscription. So it's a it's about sea monsters who always uh, kind of dwell into the deepest uh, parts of the ocean and uh, they are you know they they behave and act a lot of like humans they can speak they can eat they can walk they they do a lot of things just like humans uh, but they aren't allowed to go out in the open out of the ocean although they can they are amphibious as well as they can you know travel on uh, the surface but they are not allowed to do so and it's a story of one kid who decides to go out and explore the world and you know um, win a contest in the uh, in doing so it's a beautiful story uh, again uh, about friendship more than anything else and i highly recommend people to go see it um, it was pretty cute right and i'm looking forward to more such movies in the future uh, there was another Pixar movie that I've missed and I'm planning to see it soon. It's called Soul. I think it won the Oscar this year. Uh, and that's uh, definitely I'm going to watch it next. Soul yep, is a lovely movie. It's one of one of my favorite. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I have seen it twice. Wow. It is one of, uh, I mean, uh, after Wally, it it really touched me a lot. Yeah. Oh, Wally is one thing that lives in my heart till date. Yeah, I so, know. Wow. Yeah. I'll prioritize it. <laughs> Thanks, Gautam and Rakesh. Okay, any parting thoughts, Rakesh and Gautam? Nothing. When you talked about animation movies, uh, there's one animation movie I watched recently called uh, Raya and the Last Dragon. So it's about a story about a region which got divided uh, primarily because of powers, uh, power hunger. Yeah, mm -hmm. And uh, they had a single stone which actually 
was magical to keep the plague and everything away and they had dragons who got uh, uh, impacted by the plague as well so it's about how the regions come together and eventually uh, uh, unite again uh, and everyone lives in prosperity the entire storytelling is awesome and that's a story uh, movie definitely watch nice so from this discussion i already have one book to read <laughs> and two movies to watch <laughs> yeah. okay great uh, it was a great time uh, thanks for coming on the show rakesh and gautam and sharing your experiences and also the informal side till the next time thank you so much thank you anurag it was a pleasure thanks so much